Good morning. Again. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in just a moment. If you're in the New Testament, starting with the Gospels going right, all the T's are together. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. So if you find a T, you're close. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 1. So uh, here's where we are in the series. We last week uh, finished the book of Ephesians in our Letters to the Church series where we're looking at these books of the New Testament that originally were letters written and circulated among the churches. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to shift for four weeks into what is known as the pastoral letters. Uh, these letters are written with a, with a particular person's name, First uh, and Second Timothy. These letters are written to Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, and then Titus, of course, written to Titus. So uh, these, these letters are written to these pastors, heads of the church, and so um, a lot of the content uh, has to do with church leadership. Now, I would say that today we'll see that that's not the primary focus of the letter. The primary focus of the letter is this, that Paul has a concern about the true gospel being taught. And so his concern is that teachers, elders, overseers are put in place to make sure that the true gospel is taught that leads to practical and visible change in the lives of those who believe it. So you're going to see that theme through first and 2 Timothy and Titus, that same theme that leaders are put in place to teach, protect, and guard the sound doctrine that leads to life. And so we're going to cover these three letters over the next four weeks, starting today in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we're going to see clearly up front that Paul is concerned because there are false teachers who are motivated evidently by selfish gain, the pursuit of money and the pursuit of selfish gain, and their teaching is characterized by a false understanding of the law. And we don't get, a whole, we don't get names, and it's not that Paul's afraid to mention names. In other letters, he mentions names, but in these particular letters, evidently, Timothy knew who he was talking about. But more than that, I think he's warning him, commissioning him as he goes forward to, to stay on guard for others who might come doing the same. And so we see that their motive from, from the end of this letter, uh, Paul will talk about the, their motive is selfish gain. This is where we get our warning uh, about money, that the love of money is what? The root of all evil. And so we know that's the motive, but how do, how do we know the difference between those who are teaching correctly the gospel and those who are not? In chapter 1, we see that it's a mishandling, essentially, of the law that, uh, that kind of characterizes the difference between the two. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll get started reading uh, verses, we'll start in verse 3. And we'll make it down through verse 11. So he says this at the beginning of his letter to Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good 
if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What an opening. And this theme will run all throughout these three letters, coming back up again and again and again. So for today, what I'd like to do is just start with um, some, some spectrum, theological spectrum. I do that from time to time to kind of help us get our bearings on where we are in the scripture. So on one end of a theological spectrum, when it comes to the law, you have what's referred to as legalism, okay? Legalism is a, an obedience or a call to obey the law perfectly. And to mess up in the slightest bit is to mess up on all of it. So legalists... Um, on the outside, project a sense of self-righteousness. I have this together. They don't want anybody to see any flaw while on the inside, something else is going on, okay? So these folks who are legalists are really good at two things. One, portraying a facade of godliness, and two, heaping up a burden on those who can't do the same, okay? That's legalism, one end of a spectrum on the law and the use of the law. So we know these folks were not using the law correctly. That, that's possibly and, and very likely the way it was being used. We know there's another abuse when it comes to the law too, which is in, in theological terms is called antinomianism, which is a big word, and it literally means anti-law. Okay, And so this is the belief that since we've been saved by faith, we've been covered by Jesus' grace, we've been forgiven completely, the law is no longer relevant to me. I don't need the law. It no longer applies. There's no calling to a sense of holiness, godliness, morality. There's no sense of, of universal morality in, among the people of God. We simply are forgiven, so we do what we want. And so these folks tend to uh, use the gospel as a license to indulge in anything that they want and to treat people however they want. And so we know this is also one of the swings of misusing the law is to completely forsake it altogether, to throw it out as though it doesn't apply. I think it's important to understand what Jesus said before he began teaching the law. What did he say? He said, I've not come to abolish the law, right, but to fulfill it. So the law still has a sense of relevancy here. And obviously it does in the church in Ephesus, as Paul writes to Timothy. It's not the absence or the presence of the law. It's the mishandling of the law, right, that is causing other people to swerve from the faith. Legalism says this, obey and you will be accepted. Put it in those terms, it begins to sound familiar, doesn't it? Obey and you'll be accepted. Obey and you'll be loved. Some of you had parental experiences like this. Obey and you will be loved. And ultimately, obey and you will live. The opposite of that antinomianism or a sense of having a license to disregard the law altogether says this, because you are accepted, loved, and given life in Christ, disregard the law and live how you want. Now, regardless of what their struggle is, we can see our struggle, can't we, in our current culture, both ends of that spectrum. So 
Timothy, Paul begins writing to Timothy in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So he evidently there may have been a sense that Timothy wanted to go with Paul or go on to somewhere else. But Paul said, Timothy, God has a purpose for you here in Ephesus. You remain there. Stay there. He urged him to stay there so that there was a reason so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I need you to stay there, Timothy, and your role as a leader, as a pastor, as an elder is, as, is to charge certain persons. You can read it this way. If anybody emerges teaching a different doctrine, your job, your job is to charge them. And here's another indication. Anybody who has devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, all of these promote speculations, Right? That's the opposite of faith, isn't it? Speculation. Well, I think this could be true. It's different from I believe this is true. So the faith was, was rattled at the core just because people began to become probably skeptics and speculating on, well, this could be true or this could be true and never landing firmly on what Paul would call sound doctrine. No need for speculation here. This is true. Stand on it. Verse 5, which is going to be the next three sermons after today, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, I don't want to go too deep into these three because we'll be going into them over the next few weeks. A pure heart, the wording here literally means to be clean. Okay? A sense of pursuing godliness, a sense of moving away from dirtiness, ungodliness, what's not clean towards what is clean. There's a clear call from the gospel calling us to be clean. The second thing he mentions is a good conscience or a clear conscience, free, free from shame, free from guilt, free from a sense I, I need to hide, but I stand before you with a clear and clean and good conscience. The last thing is this, a sincere faith. And the word sincere literally means to be undisguised. That's different from legalism, isn't it? Where legalism is good at the disguise, the true gospel calls us to live undisguised, sincere or genuine in our faith. Now he's going to pick up the trail again in verse 6 about certain persons. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into Vain discussions. So is the problem that they're not discussing the law or talking about it? No. Problem isn't the absence of the law. It's the use of the law. Vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law. Right? So they want to portray themselves as experts in the law, teachers of the law. Come to me if you have any questions about the law. But here's the problem. Without understanding either what they are saying they're saying things that they don't even understand. And I like this next description. It challenges. I like it when I think about other people, but it challenges me when I think about myself. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Um, I don't know how long you've been in the faith and been walking with Christ and reading your Bible, uh, but there are going to be things that the Bible calls you to believe dogmatically, unswervingly. These things are true, hold to them. There are other things mentioned theologically that leave room for discussion. Could it be this or this? I don't know, it's kind of hard to tell. 
So these are the fringe theologies, but what Paul is calling Timothy to protect and guard is the sound doctrine of the gospel. Now, this is the philosophy that I'm learning to adapt for my own approach to the scriptures and and my understanding of theology, to land firmly where the scripture lands firmly and to land softly where the scripture lands softly. So, So just because it may not be perfectly clear to you whether or not Christ is gonna come back before there's a persecution of the church or he's going to come back after the persecution that's gonna take place, like, wherever you land on that, right, you, you still can land on sound doctrine, but land softly on the things that aren't as clear possibly to you. Uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that isn't super clear. Are we completely filled at salvation, or do we receive a filling as we go along? If we receive it as we go along, is there just one filling, and then we've got it from then on out? So there's, some, there's lack of clarity on some of these issues. So that's what I mean by land softly on the things that the Scripture Land softly on, but land firmly on the things that Scripture lands firmly on. The problem with these folks is that they were landing firmly on things they didn't even understand themselves. It wasn't that they were just having some casual conversations over, they didn't drink coffee, whatever they drank in the first century, casual conversations over wine about possible theological things that could be true. They were landing firmly on their assertions. Now, what we're going to do now is talk about the proper use of the law, because that's the issue, right? So we don't know for sure what the improper use was completely, but what we do know from the Scripture is the proper use of the law. So in verse 8, Paul will begin to shift to talking about the law here. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there's a proper use of the law. The law can be and and actually is good as long as it's used properly. This reminds me of of Psalm 19. When When I find myself disconnecting from the law or feeling overburdened by the law or feeling beat up by the law, I I personally go to Psalm 19 and meditate, starting in verse 11, on what the psalmist writes about the law of the Lord. And so here's, let me just read a few verses for you from Psalm 19, describing the goodness of the law. Starting in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. And then this verse is where I challenge myself. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And that challenges me. When I begin to lose sight of the goodness of the law, I go here and ask myself these questions. Do I see not just that the law is perfect, but that it revives my soul? Do I see that the law is tolerable, or is it something that I desire more than fine gold or dripping fresh 
honey. Uh, the psalmist just used dessert, really good dessert as a metaphor to, to describe our craving and longing for, for the law. And those who know me uh, know that I crave desserts and I have strong opinions on the best desserts to be had. And I'm not saying that it's absolutely true, but it's true in my own mind that the best banana pudding you can find, I would say in the state of Texas and probably North America, comes out of Leah Lewis's kitchen. Just thinking about it, I can smell it and I can taste it and it brings up a craving. That's the use of honey here. That when we think about the law, it, it brings up, it stirs up a sense of craving it as good. So in verse 8, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, the law is good. Don't forget that. If it's used lawfully. Verse 9 so there's a right and wrong way to use the law. In verse 9, he says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I think it's so important to understand that verse 11 is, is our filter for understanding sound doctrine because the legalist would say that they stand on sound doctrine. Law says don't murder, don't murder. Law says don't be sexually immoral, don't be sexually immoral. If you violate any of these, God doesn't love you anymore. He doesn't accept you anymore. He's embarrassed by you. So they would say, I'm standing on sound doctrine, but that sound doctrine isn't filtered through the lenses of the gospel, which is how Paul ends this section on understanding the law correctly is this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There are uh, some fantastic authors who write on the relationship between the law and gospel or the law and grace, um, from time to time, I'll, I'll mention them for you to go to. There's a, there's a particular author, uh, C.F.W. Walther, who actually taught 39 lectures on the relationship between the law and the gospel in a seminary setting. They collected these 39 lectures into a book. The book is called The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel. I want to read just a couple of quotes that illustrate the relationship between what the law alone offers versus what the gospel with the law brings to us. So here's what he says. He says, the law says to us, this is a promise that the law makes to us. The law says to us, I will quench the thirst of your soul and appease your hunger, but it is not able to accomplish this because it always adds, all this you shall have if you obey my commands. I will quench your thirst, I will appease your hunger, if you obey me, right? So the first part we like, but it's the tag on that, that leaves us desperate. I have to perfectly obey the law and it will satisfy me. Then he goes on to contrast with what the gospel says and then he contrasts with the declaration of the gospel which proclaims, take what I give and you will have it. That's what the gospel says. Take what I give and you'll have it. 
Now, there's a relationship between the two, right? And so he goes on. One of the things that he says about the law is that it uncovers to man his sins. That's a good thing. We don't like it. We don't like to be uncovered, right? We can point at the legalists and go, wow, what a facade. You're just pretending to be holy, yet every person in the room, right? On some level, we're legalists. We have a facade. We have a, the wrong kind of armor up to keep people from seeing, right, our weaknesses, where we fall, where we're tempted, where we give in. And so we need the law to illuminate, to awaken the soul to sin, to expose us, right? So the law uncovers to man his sins, but offers him no help to get out of them, and then hurls man into despair. It has not a drop of comfort for the sinner. Then he goes on to say this, the law is to be preached to secure sinners and the gospel to alarm sinners. I like that. So what's, what's the proper use of the law? If somebody is secure in their sin, right? There's a sense of hardness here. Maybe even over here on this end of the spectrum, right? Where everything is legal for me to do and I'm good with my lack of morality and my lack of obedience to the law and, and it doesn't matter how I treat people, then what does the law do? It awakens, it shines a light on me and exposes my selfishness, my, my godlessness, my sinfulness. I need to be awakened if I'm secure in my sin. However, once I'm awakened and I become alarmed, that's where I need the gospel to come in and proclaim the promise of God's goodness and grace in the midst of my sin. You see, there's a proper relationship between the two. Paul writes on this relationship as well in uh, Romans, uh, in a five and a six, he writes on this, and again in Galatians chapter three. Just look at a few verses with me from Galatians three on Paul's take on this relationship between the law and gospel. We're gonna start in verse 10 of Galatians three. He says this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if your hope of making it into heaven, of standing in God's presence for all eternity is that you're going to obey the law perfectly, then, then you have to obey it perfectly and do it. But we can't do it. So therefore, anybody who lives according to the law only is cursed. Curses everybody who lives by the law and doesn't do it. Then he goes on to say, verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteousness shall live by what? Faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So what happens for us is the law, our exposure to God's moral law, that the idea that there is an absolute right and wrong, it's always absolutely wrong to punch your dad in the face. It's always absolutely wrong to have a sexual relationship with somebody who's not your spouse. It's always wrong. It's always absolutely wrong not just to steal, but to covet your neighbor's possessions and be discontent with what the Lord has provided. It's always absolutely wrong. 
And so that law awakens us and we realize our selfishness and self-idolatry and, and how much effort we put into pleasing ourselves, esteeming ourselves, lifting ourselves up in front of people. And the law awakens us to that. And in, and in that moment, we're what? We're broken. We realize that we're without hope. And that's where the gospel rescues us. The, law, the gospel says to us, Jesus says to us through the gospel, I obeyed the law perfectly. I fulfilled its demands. Now come take what I have to offer. It's yours. Further down in Galatians 3, verse 19, Paul asked the question, speaking to those who are on the opposite end of the spectrum from legalism, the antinomianists, he says this, why then the law? Why do we even need the law? If we're just gonna live by faith and we're covered by grace, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It has a purpose. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the point of the, of the, the law was to awaken us to our transgressions and then bring us, I love the wording here, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. The gospel awakens us in our sin and calls us not to a system, not to a church, but to Jesus himself. He is the only satisfaction for our violation of the law, the only. So, and, and so I hear sometimes in church, like I've been living this sinful life, I've been awakened to my sinfulness. Often it happens when we have our first children, Right? And we're like, I need to get my family back in church. I need to go get my life right, so I need to get back in church. That's the wrong to whom, if that's your first step to be right. The first step to be right is to come to Jesus. He is the only well that offers grace that can satisfy that quench and that hunger that your soul has. Why then the law? It was added because of sin. There's an example of this at, uh, in the Gospel of John, John 8. It's the woman caught in adultery. I think it's a beautiful example of the relationship between law and gospel. So if you know the story, um, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the experts, the legalists, uh, probably had a primary motive of tripping Jesus up, but they had a secondary motive of they caught a woman in adultery. Whether they set her up or staged it, we don't know. Either way... Somehow they were there to witness it and they caught her in adultery. So they drag her out of this adulterous moment, out into public, out in front of everyone, right? So the facade was up. We obey the law. This woman does not. Let's take her to Jesus. So they, they drag this woman to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, they quote the law. Law of Moses says what? A woman is caught, a person, a woman is caught in adultery. She must be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? And then we get this famous response. Okay, you're right, it does say that. So let he who has no sin in his life throw the first stone. You familiar with the story? To the legalists, to those who have it all together, who have the facade of no sin, he says to them, okay, whichever one of you has no sin in your life, he's looking right into their hearts. You get to throw the first stone. Come on, there she is, come on. And one by one, what happened? They begin to drop their rocks and walk away. See, the law exposed them. 
The law wasn't just to expose this adulterous woman. It was to expose the Pharisees too. And they were all exposed in that moment. Now, I love Jesus' response. It's a perfect balance of law and gospel. So Jesus turns to the woman and says, hey, where are your accusers at? They're all gone. They all left. And he says this, well, neither do I condemn you. It's a statement of grace. Her sin had been exposed, publicly, humiliated. Jesus looks at her and says, what? Neither do I condemn you. But then what does he say? Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, that's the balance. The law wrecks us and exposes us and reveals who we are. The gospel rescues us, beckons us, calls us out of that. And then what? Commissions us towards godliness. Go and sin no more. Why? What's the difference? Here's the difference. Because once your heart has been enlightened by the gospel, the law is, is now good. It's now like fine gold or dripping honey. It's something to be desired, to long for, to chase after. See, the law itself isn't what's bad. The law is just doing its job. Where's the badness at in the heart of man? The law is just sitting there. It's not on the attack. It's just doing what it's supposed to do, reflecting godly character. This is what righteousness looks like. And we look at it like a mirror and we go, whoa. And we realize our desperation. But once we've been awakened and covered by God's grace, we look at the law and it no longer scares us. We're no longer fearful of it. It no longer condemns us because what stands between us and the law is the grace of Jesus. So there's a proper relationship between the law and gospel and there is a proper way to use the law. And evidently, this was a, was a big issue in this church and in this region because Paul is after it for three of his letters. Galatians 3, 21 and 22 says this. It starts with the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See what Paul is saying? In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's how you use the law. To awaken people to their need of grace. Now, this is going to run all throughout the letter. Just a couple more references here. One from 1 Timothy 4. He, this is about four chapters later in verse 16. He, he charges Timothy again, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Church, we have to understand this. What's at stake? Lives hang in the balance. Both ends of the spectrum lead to death. Both ends. So if we simply become a church, it says anything goes. Like there is no law. Everybody has a license to do as he pleases or she pleases. Treat people however you want. Live however you want. Tons of grace to go around. Go do it. 
what do we lose? We lose the awakening of our need for Christ. Then there's no need for a cross, right? There's no call to godliness. There's no call to be image bearers in the world of the character of God. However, okay, if we become legalists and we stand on this false foundation that we are perfect, we kill people. Well, I'll say it this way. We leave people in their death. We, we portray a system that is impossible to live by. And you know what? You know who makes it in that system? The best actors. They're the only ones who make it in that system. That's how you become a who's who by being good at memorizing the lines and being good at putting on the facade and the actors win. And all the rest, right, who aren't good at lying, who aren't good, live in perpetual condemnation and desperation. Both ends leave people in death. We need both. We need a law that says there is a character of God that is absolute, is untarnished. And compared to that character, you are desperate and hopeless. But there is a grace that comes out of God's character that is deep and, and vast. It's wide enough. It's rich enough to purchase and redeem all of your sin. This is why that illustration of Jesus discarding our old clothing and giving us his righteousness, that's why that matters in, in the way we share the gospel. He doesn't just make us better. He gives us his righteousness. At the very end of the letter, this is how the letter ends in 1 Timothy 6. He says this to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, this is verse 20. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Our job as a church is to teach that the law is good. The law is good. The law allows God's spirit to awaken a need to be rescued. We need, as a church, we need to invite people to the well of God's grace that never runs dry. Both of those things. Every week, every day. And we also need to encourage and call those who have tasted the goodness of God's grace towards a life of godliness. Here's, a, here's where I want to leave us with some questions to kind of evaluate where you and I are. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Do you believe that right now? Not just do you believe that the law of the Lord is perfect, but is it reviving your soul right now? Is it giving you life? Is it stirring up life in you? Do you desire it more than fine gold or honey from a fresh honeycomb? Is this how you see the law or is the law still something that you fear and that you avoid because of the way it brings about a sense of condemnation? It's a real question you need to ask yourself. Do you avoid the law? Might be, might be a, an issue. Have you tasted the goodness of God's grace?
Maybe for some of us, you've lost sight of it. Maybe you've lost sight of your inability to obey the law. And so consequently, you're beginning to lose your awareness of your need for grace. Like, I don't know where you are in that equation today. I kind of struggle in and out of those things. I do. And so I would say this to you today. If you are not a Christian, God's grace is a well that we dig. And we never lose our need to draw from that well. Okay? But that well of grace that God offers to you does not license you to live however you want and treat people however you want. It calls you to godliness. But here's the difference. We don't make God happy, happy by obeying the law. We pursue the law because God has first loved us. And I want you to hear that today. If maybe you grew up in a church or a system or your view of Christianity, it's, it's about obeying the law or God doesn't like you, that's not the gospel. If a church told you that, I'm sorry. It was an improper use of the law. Or if your perspective, maybe you haven't grown up in churches, church is a bunch of hypocrites because all I hear is the command to obey the law, but then I see them out there not obeying it. That may be true as well. Let me just say to you, that's not the proper use of the law. However, we don't disregard it. The law reflects God's character, and his character doesn't change. And so today, I want to encourage you, if you have not trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you have no well of grace to draw from, maybe one of the reasons why you avoid church altogether. And Jesus is inviting you today to come and taste and see He's good. There's no sin in your life, past, present, or future, that is so dark or so ugly that God's grace can't completely redeem it, forgive it, and wash it clean. You, you need to hear that today. And Jesus is inviting you into a relationship that makes you clean by simply believing. That's your part, that's what you get to do. Don't, don't try to climb the ladder of moral success. You'll slip and fall and bust your face every time. And if ever we as a church become that or perpetuate that, somebody please, somebody please come to the elders and let's talk about it. If you ever go to a church, find yourself at a church that says you can make God happy by becoming morally perfect, you have heard a wrong gospel. Right here in between is where we need to be. A perpetual awareness of our need for grace sustained by the perpetual well of Jesus' flowing grace. I'm gonna pray for us now, and uh, I'm excited about the next few weeks, um, but I wanna pray for us in this moment about what God may be stirring and speaking in you. If you're at that place where you've never really thought about the law and the gospel that way, maybe your soul has been awakened this morning. If you're a person who's been avoiding the law, let me invite you into grace, okay? If you're a person who has disregarded the law, let me invite you in your grace to come see the law now is good, okay? I'm gonna pray for us. Our prayer partners will be down here. Matter of fact, prayer partners will come forward. Our worship team comes up. Uh, we'll have prayer partners at the front and back ready to pray and talk with you about this. Uh, let's pray together. 
as we prepare to respond. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, first of all, for the law. A law that reveals, exposes, a law that sheds light on our sin. We thank you that you are both a God of justice and grace. That your grace meets us in our failure to obey the law. And so while the law makes us thirsty, your grace quenches our thirst. So right now I want to pray that for any person in the room who has not tasted the goodness of your grace, that today would be the day of tasting your forgiveness for the first time. That they would come to you in faith, believing the gospel. And Lord Jesus, you would move in and, and set up shop in their life and begin the process of renewal and redemption and cleansing and calling towards godliness. And God, for those of us who have lost sight of the goodness of the law, for those of us who tend to use grace as a license to do whatever we want. Today, would you call us once again into repentance and a time of revisiting the goodness of the law and setting our feet once again on the path towards godliness, trusting that your grace leads us there. So Lord Jesus, come now and lead us to respond. We pray this in your powerful name.